The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Gentlemen, and welcome to Clerical Conversations on the Crisis on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Nicholas Wansbutter, and I have the great privilege of spending some time this evening with our regular guests on this show, Bishop Daniel Dolan, a pastor of St. Gertrude the Great Church in Westchester, Ohio, and Father Anthony Chicata, assistant pastor at St. Gertrude the Great. So uh, thank you for joining us once again, my Lord and Father. It's always uh, an honor and a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you very much. Our pleasure. Thank you, Nicholas. Today's episode of Clerical Conversations on the Crisis, we're going to be discussing a, a variety of different subjects along the topic of relocation for the sacraments, survivalism, uh, end times, and uh, whatever uh, other sorts of things may come up in between. But before we get into that, uh, Bishop Dolan, could, could I ask you to start us off with a prayer, please? Oh, certainly, Nicholas. Thank you. So, so in this show, we're going to be talking about moving. That's, that's actually the first topic. Do we need to? Is it, is it a moral imperative to move for the Mass or, or for the sacraments? And then a lot of topics that, uh, that would come from this uh, basic idea. Thinking about the show, uh, I, it, it occurred to me that everything started in the way of our salvation. The, they call it sometimes salvation history with moving. Abraham was uh, moved by God to leave Ur of the Chaldees, and after that, as they say, everything else is history. So uh, there's an official prayer of the church called the itinerarium, or the travel prayer, with a number of very beautiful collects, whereby we ask God's assistance when we do move from one place to another, either temporarily or even permanently. So let's begin with this prayer, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. O God, who didst call thy servant Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, and didst keep him from evil through all the ways of his pilgrimage, we beseech thee that it may please thee to keep us thy servants. Be thou unto us, O Lord, a help when we go forward, a comfort by the way, a shadow from the heat, a covering from the rain and cold, a chariot in weariness, a refuge in trouble, a staff in slippery paths, a haven in shipwreck. Do thou lead us that we may happily come thither, whither we would, and thereafter come again safe unto our own home, who livest and reignest forever and ever. Amen. Well, thanks that, Lord. We... Uh did uh, on the Restoration Radio Network talk a little bit about relocation uh, back in the January episode of the flagship. We had a layman's perspective. Uh, for listeners may be interested after they've heard this show to go back and download that one if you haven't heard it before. Uh, Stephen, 
myself, my wife, and uh, Joshua Guncher, who uh, listeners will know from Introduction to Catholicism, all of us being people who've relocated for the sacraments, we talked a bit about why we did it and how we went about doing it. But I think it would be good to start this show with a cleric's perspective or the clerical perspective, uh, as uh, Bishop Dolan alluded to at the very beginning, leading into the prayer. Uh, Millard, is it a moral imperative to move closer to the sacraments? Well, it was a moral imperative for Abraham to get out of her, <laughs> that's for sure. And had he not, we would be in a fine pickle today. But um, when we use the term, I was thinking about that term, moral imperative, that sounds like it could be a cousin to sin and then mortal or venial sin. And I think we clergy are in agreement today that there's plenty of sins on the book as it is. So we want to avoid even the impression. Sometimes in some of the previous shows, like about sports, you know, people go right away into that, oh, you're saying it's a mortal sin kind of a mentality. So we have to be very prudent here. Um, I don't know what Father Chicago has to say about it, but I would say that um, very rarely would it ever be uh, obligatory, a moral imperative for us to to move in, and, and say it's not. But Paroxidans, maybe for someone's given circumstances of life, that might be, that might be necessary. And here, as with, um, with everything else, you have to consider a decision and, and, and making a decision. So let me say that, um, the, uh, the, the way that a, that a decision should be made is, um, by, by means of, uh, Prayer, first of all, because you ask God for his light. And it's not just a quickie, but a sort of persevering prayer. And then you ask for the guidance and the counsel of others, your priest, the clergy. Uh, obviously, you're, you discuss it with your spouse. You discuss it with friends. Get as much information as you, as you possibly can. But then I think the deal maker or the deal breaker, especially for a question like this, would be, is it possible? Could we? If you crunch the numbers and you couldn't do it, and you just don't see any way that it could possibly be done, well, then very likely that's not God's will, at least not right now, for you to do that. But then, on the other hand, if it is possible, then you would have a green light and you look at the above points about um, about uh, guidance, uh, counsel from others, and, and, and really asking our Lord, especially as a mother of good counsel, What's God's will? Please show me God's will. Father, do you have anything to add to that? Well, um, excellent points, Your Excellency. But um, to, to this I would add that um, the question of the sacraments being near to the Mass and the sacraments is something that uh, has to be a factor to uh, consider. Uh, one of the things one, occasion, one frequently runs into is, is that... Uh, um, since we're a mobile society and people have uh, sometimes the option of moving or sometimes the obligation of moving uh, because of uh, their job, they uh, are not conscious right away of the uh, importance of this this uh, factor of accessibility of the sacraments as being something that has to be weighed as uh, part of the uh, the equation. Uh, some people... Uh, for some people, uh, they see this as, as a primary question. Uh, others only think of it uh, a little bit later. But uh, 
from my perspective, it has to be something uh, I think that uh, people should be uh, aware of uh, uh, putting into the equation right away when they're talking about moving. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. and this, I mean, this might seem obvious, but uh, when you talk about pros and cons, certainly there's a lot of uh, big benefits to having regular access to the sacraments. Oh, 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 yes. I mean, obviously that that should be a major point. And um, I sometimes, I question, sometimes I come across people who for very secondary or seemingly worldly reasons move away from Mass and the sacraments. And maybe they might be fairly devout or well-informed Catholics. I really, that I really question. Uh, to uh, to upset one's one's life, and then so that one doesn't have the mass. And I'm not, I know some families, or even young families, like that. And as they say in Kentucky, that just don't make no sense to me. But just in, in the general idea of uh, of of moving, I think it's probably there's there, there, there's a lot to say, as it were, on both sides, from the point of view of the glory of God. And that's we want the glory of God. We want the suppression of heresy. We want the exaltation of Mother Church. There's something to be said for if one were to be up to it, and again, counsel and prayer here, but for staying, stand your ground, stay where you are, bring in a priest, uh, spread the faith, try to connect with other Catholics, make some converts, have a, have a mission, uh, and then count on the priests with whom you work to be able to help you because they would, they would visit you there, and that's one way in which the, the, the faith has spread. That's very, that, that may not be for everybody, but that is a very important um, poss- possibility to consider. On the other hand, move, and you help yourself, and you also help the church to which you move by strengthening that, that community there. You help to develop your own, the, the church, and develop your own spiritual life, and you'll be able to grow spiritually with the help of the Mass and the sacrament. Some people will say, and they'll admit it, I really need confession pretty frequently. I have an idea of maybe a, once a month, maybe if weather permitting, that's probably not going to be enough for me and for my family. Um, so if, if it's possible to move, then do move. But there isn't any one answer, I don't think, for any of these, um, for any of these questions. One, one thing I would like to say, though, is that um, relocation is not reinvention. Many people, not all by any means, and not probably not even the majority, but in my experience, many people who have relocated to be near a traditional church do not persevere. And sometimes, God forbid, they even lose, they end up uh, losing the faith or the practice of the faith that drew them to a particular church to start with. But I think in these cases, one's dealing more with um, some kind of uh, spiritual or emotional instability. Today, there's, it's everything, as Father mentioned, everything's really unstable, and people are moving all the time. And so there's that, I think there's a temptation that people have to answer all of their problems by relocation, and then that enables them to start over, sort of like a spiritual or emotional bankruptcy, and then you start with a clean slate again. You make new friends in a new place, and you're going to try and do things, but if there's a problem on the inside... The problem is going to move with you. It's not you. You have to be careful that your your motives for moving, for relocating, are are worthy ones, and that you've gone through the proper steps to see if this is indeed 
uh, the will of God for you. So there's a lot of instability, though, in our society. And sometimes the last state of that man who relocates is uh, worse than the first, but not always and not necessarily by any means. And, of course, the, the people who are uh, inclined toward uh, self-reinvention as a way of dealing with uh, internal problems frequently are not, uh, you know, are not aware of it, are not aware of, of, of what's going on because it's, uh, uh, for this sort of person, it's, it's sometimes difficult, very difficult to look within, within himself to see something like this. And that's the importance of something that Bishop Dolan um, mentioned earlier here is the idea of, of prudence and of seeking uh, good counsel and getting uh, good counsel from the outside, preferably from uh, uh, from a priest or someone who is of good and, and um, uh, sound and mature judgment. Mm-hmm. So uh, the the idea of of, of uh, counsel and prudence and trying to think things out uh, before you act is something that should be a part of of a of a moving decision. And I, it sounds like, I guess that's a real realization that moving to the sacraments isn't going to be some sort of panacea. But, oh, um, indeed, indeed not, no, no. But, but on the flip side as pastors, have you seen uh, there being a, a negative impact on people if they have the ability to move closer to the sacraments and haven't? I mean, I know a lot of people, they'll talk, well, the Japanese Catholics lasted centuries without the sacraments, so I'm okay, but... Have you, have you seen I, negative impacts on just sitting at home a, all the that's, time? That's a canard, actually, Nicholas. The, there, were, there were some of the Japanese Catholics who kept their faith, and when the French missionaries returned, uh, embraced the faith and received the rest of the sacraments and got, got going to Mass again. But there were many who stayed uh, as these hidden Christians. Their religion had become synchronistic over the years, over the centuries, and they practiced a, a mix or a blend. And that's the danger, isn't it? If you, so let's talk about that for a moment. There is a real danger, uh, come out from her, oh my people. You know, God called his people out of Egypt because he didn't want them to be, to be having sort of an Egyptian mentality, i.e. a pagan one, uh, about life. And he wanted his people to be pure and keep the faith and live their faith in a, in a community and in, in a right kind of a structure or a setting. So, um, that's why I mean that her accidents there could be indeed an obligation. Uh, I've seen many, many cases of those who moved to get away from the bad world. Uh, their children or their grandchildren end up losing everything. And I don't think that Father and I could stress too much the importance of um, the principles of decision-making, including respect for good clergy and consultation with them, and uh, searching one's own soul. It's this instability. It were that easy, that if you just get away from an evil place, then everything is going to be just fine. But if there isn't going to be one problem, there's going to be another. You have to have a good, solid spiritual life. So it's very difficult to lay down general rules. But I know of families who have relocated, and then they've lost everything spiritually. They weren't ready for it, or they, there, there was some other problem that maybe they were seeking to solve by relocating. I know families who just wanted to get away from the big city and raise their children out in the country in some desolate state, uh, way hidden, hidden away. And that didn't work either. 
because the world has a, and the, the world, the, the flesh and the devil have a way of finding you. <laughs> and, uh, there has to be this internal working. And if there is, you basically will be okay anywhere you go. But, uh, because right here in Westchester, you know, it's, it's very, very possible for adults and children both to adopt the spirit of the world all, all the while going to the Latin Mass. That's a problem that, that any priest would face with his people anywhere you go. So uh, there probably aren't any, aren't any really, really easy answers here. Hmm. Oh, Lord, you, when you're talking about uh, the Jews and getting away from the Egyptians, you talked about community, and that's something that seems to come up uh, not infrequently in traditional Catholic discourse, the idea of, well, things would be a lot better if a bunch of traditional Catholics all got together and went somewhere and tried building like a little traditional Catholic town. Uh, I, I'm wondering what your thoughts and experiences, if any, are on that think, idea. Yeah, I think community could be could be interpreted in sort of a broad sense. That is to say, a church, a thriving church, clergy, possibly a school, fellow Catholics, and the ability of the um, the availability of church life, the liturgical life, to enrich uh, one's soul and the family, and to raise children that way. That would be one view of community. The other view would be more a, a more narrow construct, and that would entail actually living together in, in, in a town and possibly even one of those pre-planned communities. I think that's a pipe dream. I think that it, that it opposes human nature. I think that the only way that kind of stuff works is, is if you have a cult. And the cult always, you know, there's, like, there's a mythology that informs everybody. And uh, there's, there are people that inform on the people who don't go along with the cult or the cult leaders, and the leaders are very, very strict. That's the only way it works. I think it would never work for traditional Catholics because everyone's too independent. They're all independent thinkers. And people will mm-hmm. fall to fighting almost right away. So, you know, what, what are we going to do about chlorine the water or what are we going to do about sugar? And then, then there might be gluten. And, and there's just there'd be no end of practical problems and difficulties. Fences and a little distance, I think, make uh, good neighbors. And I would point people to the scriptures again, in this case, the New Testament, and the uh, beginning of the church, the infant church in Jerusalem, where they live together uh, freely and voluntarily in, in the excess of their devotion, a, a community life, and they held everything in common. And right away, there are terrible temptations, and Nias and Sapphira are an example of that. And it didn't work. So that's why you have St. Paul writing these eloquent letters, begging uh, his Greek converts who actually were working to send money to the people in Jerusalem who weren't working anymore, uh, because, because uh, there, the, the, the community was, was a failure, was a flop. It just wasn't, wasn't successful. I think those kinds of idealistic um, communities uh, are not only not necessarily the way to go, but I think they actually oppose, they oppose human nature and history. One of the things that Bishop Sanborn uh, pointed out in, in uh, reference to projects like this of, of going in and founding your own uh, traditionalist city on the hill is that um, uh, precisely in uh, the early church, um, the Christians uh, settled upon the idea of uh, while trying to keep themselves separate from the world in terms of their 
spirit and uh, their mentality. Nevertheless, they lived in the world. They did not go off uh, and found their own communities uh, somewhere, their own little uh, villages, and keep themselves uh, separate from the world. Rather, they tried to, despite the temptations of the world, they tried to be a leaven for it and uh, tried to uh, make converts. So uh, I don't think that one sees really uh, in the history of the church uh, any sort of success in an isolationist project like that. Mm. It's usually it's usually the the Protestants, it's, or it's usually some sort of a sect, uh, pretty much clearly, that that's going to try to go that route. Indeed, I think you could say, if you look at church history, that uh, it's the job of the church, it's the job of the Catholic clergy, religious, to create the world. And so you have the fall of the Roman Empire, the true Dark Ages, the barbarian invasions, and then you have the monks in the midst of the barbarians giving an example, calling them to prayer, converting them, teaching them how to farm, and showing them how to lead a, a, a regular life in, in, in a settled place. And the Jesuit missionaries did the same thing centuries and centuries after that and in North or South America. Uh, so we, we're meant to create, we're not meant to run away from the world. We're meant to create the world. Now you could create a world just as well around a church that could use indeed your, your support and your presence as create the right kind of world someplace else. That's another question. But, uh, the idea of, of running off and running away out of fear, nah, I don't think so. Right, yeah. As you mentioned, the only people I can think of that have really pulled off these sorts of communities would be uh, like the Amish or very strict Mennonites. But, mm-hmm. again, that's that very cult-like atmosphere. Although even right. then, and they seem to have wars over whether you're allowed green curtains or not, and then they split off and create a different colony. And, uh, yeah, but it's a very repressive situation. That's the only thing that seems to be able to, to hold it together. And I mean, when I was asking about community, the, the only examples I can think of are, I, I think, Post Falls, Idaho, St. Mary's, Kansas, uh, are kind of somewhat attempts at doing that. Or from my mm-hmm. own experience in Canada, there's a little village in Saskatchewan called Wellwyn. I know a few people from there. It's a village of about 100 people in the middle of nowhere, Saskatchewan. And a number of uh, uh, city slickers like myself have attempted to move out there thinking this is going to be a great thing. And mm-hmm. I can't say that the results from talking to people, that they've been they've been pleased with the results, and I, I think I I heard from a friend that no one in that town even speaks to each other anymore. They just go to mass <laughs> on Sunday and then sure, go yeah. their separate ways. Human nature, human nature. The only way it works is you've got to have someone running the whole thing with a really strong arm, and that would be a sectarian or a cultish mentality, such as you do find in the Pius X society. So in the measures that they've enjoyed success, and I'm sure they have a lot of problems, uh, but in the measures that they have success, it's because of the sectarian mentality. Everyone buys in the, same, the common myth. And then everyone theoretically would bow down to the authority of the society to regulate disputes. Then it might work. But if you actually have, you know, Catholics possessed of both brain and an uncompromised faith, and then, of course, a mouth, too, I don't see what your chances are. I really don't. Yeah, uh, you know, periodically one... Uh 
you know, uh, hears of the dramas that are, are, are playing out in these, these small, uh, communities like St. Mary's and like, uh, Post Falls. Yeah. And, um, it, it tends to confirm one's, uh, uh, suspicion all the time that that you have all these different internal dramas uh, going on, different denunciations of of, of uh, uh, people, and that what holds it together is this uh, idea of a uh, uh, strong authority. The uh, Mount Saint Michael's people, of course, had that uh, under uh, Francis Schuckart. Uh, they, uh, you know, where there was an incredible level of control, and the, the old timers in, in the CMRI community still uh, talk about that. That uh, you know, there was always that um, that close control, and hmm. uh, the the uh, uh, and obviously not a obviously not a healthy thing. The, I remember the reaction of, of uh, during one of my visits to Mount St. Michael's. Someone had, uh, some of the younger people had uh, ended up going over to the uh, Pius X Mass Center in uh, Post Falls. And uh, from the nature of the sermon uh, that they got from the priest over there at that time, uh, one of them said to me, boy, that really seems like a cult. I don't want anything to do with that, <laughs> which was really ironic, you know, <laughs> considering the background. So. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, I guess the, the question that comes to my mind is, obviously, people did live in small villages in the past and didn't kill all of each other and were able to uh, uh, function, but what do you think was the big difference between, say, a little medieval village of a couple hundred or a hundred people uh, and the, these modern things? Is it the, uh, uh, the artificiality of people relocating to these places rather than growing up there, or is it something Yeah, the artificiality, I think, Nicholas, and the intensity of of one's ideological commitment, which tends to uh, attract people who are maybe not entirely balanced all the time. I think that's a factor. And, uh, you know, if, if it was an agrarian community... You had you, you truly were living from the land, and, and and that 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 kind of a way of life, I think, is is essentially healthy, and um, so you you avoid. I think if it's a natural kind of a community, then you avoid the uh, hot house mentality, and with the hot house mentality come all these other problems that that, that you're going to get. But once again, it would be it would be difficult to issue any 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 strict rules or condemnations when it comes to these things. But I do think, you know, especially we clergy, we certainly want to want to make an appeal for the mass and and for the support of our apostolate. So if you know, having consulted and prayed and everything else, if it could be done, you should do it. To, to raise your children in a wide sense in a Catholic community where they would have access to a good mass and to good clergy and to good friends and all of the rest of it. The, the life of a hardy pioneer is not for everybody. Not everybody went to the New World. Some people stayed in the old country. Well, and speaking of supporting the sacraments or the mass and good priests going to a good mass, uh, I wanted to ask you to talk just a little bit about uh, the uh, you know an unicum mass, a mass offered in union with uh, with Francis, because I think unfortunately some traditional Catholics are a little bit confused on this point, and they'll think, well, 
there's a society of St. Pius X Mass near me, or there's a resistance Mass near me. That's a traditional Latin Mass. Um, so why should I relocate halfway across the country uh, just for a Mass that is offered by Sedevacantus Priest? What well, would you say uh, about that? The, uh, you know, unfortunately, the reflection of that is... Um, a uh, is kind of what we call Latin massism. That really all that matters is uh, whether or not the mass is uh, in Latin, and whether or not certain um, uh, traditionalist conventions are uh, are observed. And of course, that's the uh, big fallacy and the big problem with uh, so much of the traditionalist movement that, that historically people settled on that particular position that the Latin Mass is all that matters, that the ecclesiology um, doesn't matter, that the question of the Pope doesn't matter. And, of course, we know it does, uh, not only in, in principle as far as Catholic theology goes, because where the Pope is, there is a church if uh, you have a true Pope, but uh, also in terms uh, not just of, of uh, theology, but also the practical effects of it, because when you adopt that lowest common denominator uh, mentality that the Latin Mass is all that matters, uh, what, there's a good chance that you're going to end up in the new church. That you're going yeah, to you're, you're you're giving your assent by assisting actively at, at at a mass, worshiping at it. You're giving your assent to it as a lion to a sacrilege. How could that be pleasing to God? How could that be a good example to children or to other Catholics? I don't think that it could be in any sense. Furthermore, I think that Almighty God, in His justice, punishes those who push this popular people pleasing uh, program maybe just a, a way way too far. Uh, it's true, it's a success formula. If you have this Latin Massism, lowest common denominator, uh, keep everybody happy, just get you to a Latin Mass and you're good. Uh, people would like to hear that. Oh, no, 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 no sense, no, no worry, no problem, just stay where you are, that's fine. However, does Almighty God want to hear that? Do these issues make any sense? And then if the children uh, grow up listening, say, to a Pius X priest, or even the adults hear a Pius X priest and Pius X conversation, what's going to stop them from taking the next logical step, that is to say, of the cardboard pope, cut out pope. He's a pope, but he's not a pope. He's only a pope when we want to, you know, set him up in the room with a little stay behind him so he, you know, stays in place. Uh, I, I think you, you run there, if you violate the faith, you run the risk of losing the faith. That's, of course, a good argument for relocation, but it's certainly the strongest possible argument for uh, following Catholic, knowing and following Catholic theology on these points, regardless of, of the sacrifice that may be asked of, of, of you. Yes, that, that's not to uh, say, of course, that, that uh, sometimes people are clueless about these issues, despite one's best efforts. But, oh, sure. Uh, you know, you have, to, you have to educate them to it. Uh, what is... Um, uh, particularly um, uh, insupportable and illogical is the idea that someone who is a uh, convinced uh, state of a contest uh, otherwise would say that ultimately this issue doesn't matter 
because what you end up with is you end up with what I call the the, the toy trains uh, approach to the question of the Pope. That uh, the whole idea and the whole theory behind it is like setting up a, a, a giant. Um, complex of toy trains in your basement with all sorts of, of uh, nice features in it uh, the, that uh, you know you have the uh, different houses where the people live you have the uh, different realistic effects trees and so on and uh, that you admire very much but then uh, you turn the light off and go upstairs and return to uh, the world that has is, is not affected by the toy trains in the basement and that's what I see very much in that mentality, especially among people who really should know better. You know, you know so it's our, it's our duty, and not only as priests, but uh, the, the duty of Catholic, um, informed Catholic laity, to do their very best to get the word out about these unpopular but true theological uh, positions. Because if they are not properly understood and applied, I'm afraid there's a terrible penalty in this life as well as in the next that will be extracted. We have a duty to form the people, to give them a doctrinal formation, charitably, patiently, of course, without scandalizing anybody, but I, it, it has to be done. And then, and these issues about moving for the mass or not, I think that you have a pretty good example of that. Now, um, as someone who's never been to uh, your chapel in Westchester, although hopefully I, I will be, have a chance to visit it before long, you would be welcome. I'm, <laughs> I'm interested to know uh, what's it like there in terms of the community. It's had oh, what, about 30 or 40 years now, of I guess 30 years or so, of uh, to, to grow, and uh, how, how's that developed uh, in terms of? Community, or how are there lots of people living really close to the church, or how would you characterize it? Well, that's a that's a good question. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about that lately, just because it's it's a question of geography and also of, of the economy. Uh, but it's fairly it would be fairly expensive. You'd have to be making, I think, a pretty good income to be able to buy a house and uh, near fairly near the church. It's not an inexpensive area in which to live. What do you think, Father? Well, uh, um, I would say that, that uh, it, uh, I would say honestly that I don't think it's that bad. And okay. that the, um, uh, the roads and everything in Cincinnati are, are uh, in this area generally are not that bad and we have there's access to uh communities that are a little more rural where housing yes. is, is not quite uh, expensive as expensive say to the north of us so it's a mixed bag i mean uh i suspect that one can live uh either way but um I think the the reason, though, that the members of our congregation are so diffused geographically in in relationship to where the church is, is it's a number of uh, different economic factors and and, and job factors and uh, and uh, transport for uh, the people who uh, who come to this church. I mean, you have uh, you don't have people who live just right down the road. But Unfortunately, I, I think. It would, be, it would be great if we did, it but would. maybe as yes. I said, there's a lot, lot of factors that, that, that impact that. I think you could get a place uh, within about 20 minutes, I think that would be fair to say, or even a rural place if one, and a, and a more moderately priced rental or house, within Definitely. about 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. And then that's, that's accessible, that's reasonable for most people. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so it sounds 
I think that's fairly typical of a lot of traditional mm-hmm. Catholic chapels that the people are fairly spread out and perhaps depend, dependent upon a lot of different factors. You mentioned people have different types of jobs, different uh, incomes. They can afford different types of housing in different areas. They're, they're trying to split the difference between being close to mass but also not having to commute too far to your yeah, job. That's right. Sure. And then for some people, they would prefer to raise children in more of a rural atmosphere. For others, it'd simply be a question of uh, uh, a planned development. Maybe it would just, that would be too expensive. They couldn't buy into that. They would need something more moderately priced. But uh, I think within 15, 20 minutes, you would have a, a pretty good variety. Yes, mm-hmm. indeed. Well, uh, for anyone who's just joining us, you're listening to Clerical Conversations on the Crisis uh, on the Restoration Radio Network. And we've been talking about uh, relocation and trad communities uh, so far in our show. And I uh, just remind listeners that uh, our show and all shows on the network are uh, all rights reserved to uh, true restoration. But uh, if you're interested in rebroadcasting of our work, uh, just send us an email at mail at truerestoration.org and something can uh, very easily be worked out. So um, thinking of uh, rural living, I live in a somewhat quasi-rural situation, a, a little bit uh, outside a city and uh, on a small acreage, and uh, I'd be interested in uh, your lordship and father's thoughts on uh, the idea, whole idea of living off the grid. Uh, that's another thing that seems to be a popular idea among traditional Catholics, although something that I've looked into is easier said than done just in terms from a mm-hmm. dollar standpoint. But uh, is that uh, a Catholic idea to, to be independent to that degree from... Uh, I, mean, I, think, I suppose I think, it's a fairly new question because utilities are a pretty new thing. But uh. sure, I think the, um, the the difficulty with something like that is it's a, it's a movement. It's a strong movement in uh, in, in the West, maybe, and um, the, the 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 it like any movement, it can adopt uh, the, uh, the the elements of a religion. In effect, it becomes it becomes your all. It's all consuming. Too much time, too much energy, too much fear, too much worry and planning. So that, that becomes your raison d'etre instead of living a Catholic life with, with the sacraments and mass and Catholic education and Catholic socializing and, uh, and the rest. So I think the whole idea of living, living off the grid or survivalism is a grand temptation for our traditional Catholics today. And as with any temptation, you this kind of a thing, you want to stare it right down. You want to re- reason and pray your way out of it to realize it's, uh, I mean, I've, I've known priests that over the years, in one way or another, who have bought into this, you know, the idea of uh, fill the basement with all kinds of survivalist food. There was some kind of a brand. What was that, Father Chicada? Was that Sam and Andy? I, I think it was Sam and Andy. Yeah. Sam and Andy, yeah. In, in all these bales of, not bales of wheat, but flour, you know, big bags of flour. And uh, like I, I, think, I, I think that their mascot was a squirrel, which was a squirrel. Uh, good idea yeah, because the idea struck me yeah. particularly nuts. Yeah, so. <laughs> and then the food would go bad. Anyway, yeah, then the food always goes bad. Anyways, uh, it's just it's and then you living off the grid, getting away because you're getting away from the, the the bad world and the bad guys are going to come for you. What difference does it make? Follow God. Do not compromise your morals or your faith. 
make the right decisions for yourself and for your family according to circumstances as as we've been discussing in this in this program otherwise it's just not worth it uh, I think of the, the gospel parable. You know, the Lord tells about the man who, who filled the barn with grain, and his harvest is successfully complete, and he has a really good year. And he thought, right now, he's going to have a, wor- a worry in the world. And that day, he dies. That night, he dies. Thou fool, this day thy soul is demanded of thee. So it's not, security is not going to come from having a perfect bomb shelter or having perfectly equipped um, uh, storage facilities or from living off the grid with, uh, with, with the goats and, and, and mountain spring water or something. No, that's, if you, if you want to do a little bit of that with some moderation, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. No. But the essential is something quite different. And it's that, that the essential always reflects an idea of the trust, trust of God and living without, uh, without this inordinate fear. I've seen, again, I talked about people who move to a rural state to live off the grid and get away from the evil world. It, that, that spirit communicates itself to the children. And it's just, uh, it's squirrely. It's unhealthy. It's not Catholic. The idea of everything has to be hidden. Everything has to be secret. And we're going to survive. We'll be the survivors or the survivalists. No, no, that all of that is antithetical really, to Catholicism. And I think it should be condemned uh, publicly from time to time, and, and, and certainly in individual conversation. Yeah, it becomes an end uh, in itself, yes. and yeah. uh, it does become uh, exaggerated, and mm-hmm. it uh, tends to uh, eclipse the more important things in your life because you're constantly worried about uh, all of these uh, things that have to do with uh, with the world and in effect and, and and some sort of a material protection and a material success uh, and, and and it's not going to um, it's not ultimately going to help your salvation you could end up committing just as many sins as I say the devil is a way of adapting himself and his and his uh, policy his commercials to you, regardless of where you are. You could end up committing just as many sins in that kind of a world, with that kind of a mentality, as would somebody else who leads, aside from the traditional Latin Mass on Sunday, pretty much of a conventional middle-class American life, say, in our country. Uh, So the question is to, to live your Catholic faith and to avoid sin in the unnecessary occasions of sin and live in such a way as to be as to be worthy of the Catholic name. All right, but if I can play devil's advocate a little bit on the uh, sure. the question of is, isn't uh, that the job of lawyers that? all the time? <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. Um, <laughs> but but on the other hand, uh, I, we we don't need to be like uh, um, you know not even doing anything to provide for ourselves, uh, not taking any precautions, and just thinking, oh, you know god will will just provide like i'm i'm you know I'm thinking of you know I think of the Crusades, the Muslims didn't wear armor because, according to their faith, Allah was going to take them when he was going to take them, and it was like uh, an abomination for them to uh, deny that by wearing armor, whereas for Christians, it's completely fair game to wear armor, and that's why you you could have a hundred crusaders massacre an army of ten thousand Muslims because the guys wearing armor aren't as easy to kill. 
So, but but the but but Nicholas, uh, the, the Muslims won the war. <laughs> the well, Crusaders it, it, won many a battle, <laughs> and the Muslims today are still winning the war. Maybe we should stop and look at, at what they, what what they did to make them win eventually, and why are they still winning today? You know, it's it's this idea. Mm-hmm. There's a they they bought into a, a whole culture, and they're, they they take their culture with them for good or for bad, and they have very simple but strong religious beliefs, and they're not ashamed of their faith. You know, they'll 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 they'll, they'll pray in public and all and, and and all of the rest of it. Whereas the Crusaders often had impure motives and uh, lacked, uh, lacked a lot in the way of, of, of the right kind of uh, conviction or the right kind of uh, strategy or, or direction. And that's why ultimately the Crusades were a failure. Uh, but the, and the Muslims have won, they're, and they're, they're, they're winning right now. So maybe in the context of all of this, we should, we should really be stressing uh, the, the idea of, um, as for me and for my house, we will serve the Lord, a very important Old Testament quote, I think. This idea of Catholic culture, you, you, you make it where you go. It doesn't matter if you're in a barbarian wilderness. And then by example, you lead others to that. And you're very wary of making compromises. Generally speaking, don't. Don't com- be uncompromising, but, but do it with a smile. Make it attractive. Let people see the joy of your Catholic, uh, of your Catholic life. Uh, but I probably distracted you from your devil's advocate presentation. <laughs> That's probably a lawyer's trick too, though, isn't it? <laughs> uh, it, it is. <laughs> but um, I guess it, it sounds to me like, and this seems to be something that is a recurring theme in clerical conversations on the crisis, is that at the end of the day it comes down to a question of balance. Yes. So there's nothing wrong with uh, maybe taking a few precautions or nope. uh, being intre- taking a casual interest in some of these things. But it becomes a problem when you become un- have an unbalanced attachment to it, and you're spending more, your focus is more on survivalism than on living your faith or studying exactly. your faith. Exactly. And then, uh, speaking of survivalism, if we had $100 for every time someone sent us some sort of, a, of, a, of an urgent email bulletin about the coming crash, <clears throat> we, we would be very, very wealthy today because people are always seeing crashes and crashes frequently don't happen, actually. Uh, and, and for all of this, you, you take your prudent steps. Please, God, serve him. Do your, the duty of your state. And for the rest, leave it to God. Because at the end of the day, we all have to die. And after death comes the judgment. And, and, these, and then heaven or hell. These are the things that really matter. And so th- this other stuff is based on, I think, there's sort of a, there's sort of a hidden, uh, a hidden uh, philosophy here just under the surface, and the philosophy is that of naturalism, as though death were the greatest evil, and as though we are somehow meant to, to make the most of this life because this is it. But if we're, if we're travelers, if we're all the time having to say our itinerarium, our traveler prayers, because we, we're just sort of moving through, and we're, uh, and as the apostle says, I have here no lasting abode. If that's our, if that informs us, our life and our our life's journey, then there, there will be a, you know, a sense of 
a detachment is one of the great Christian virtues, and God insists on that. He teaches us detachment often by, you might say, at the barrel of a gun. <laughs> he detaches us, and we have no choice but to accept the detachment. But to, to do so graciously in a spiritual sense makes a, makes a lot of sense, and it's to say joyfully in a way that gives a good example to others. Otherwise, a lot of Catholics, even traditional Catholics, can end up living as though this life were the end-all and the be-all and the most important of all. But it's not. You could die tonight. Yeah, well, and that's the thing. When you're talking about the crash, I, that, that seems to be a favorite topic among traditional Catholics, and I, I see it all over the place. And uh, sure, sure. Uh, I mean, it's, some people, they'll even then take it to the point of, I, I sometimes hear people saying, like, oh, well, uh, uh, no one should get married anymore because the crash is coming, like, in six months, so uh, what's the point? Your children are all going to starve to death anyway. Or, uh, you know, why... Why relocate yes. to the sacraments? We've, Everything's going to collapse. We've heard so many times. We've heard oh, so, so many, many times. times. What I mean, nutty. over the, the past 35 years... Is, it's just as, a as nutty as idea, and these, these crazy ideas just get recycled again yeah. and again and again. You know, there was a, a, a late vocation Benedictine monk and priest who founded St. Joseph's Monastery at Flavigny in France. And he, he and his Benedictines would go around preaching their version of the exercises of St. Ignatius. And his policy was to encourage and insist on vocations because the world was coming to an end. And there was no sense getting married and trying to raise children in this wicked, wicked world of ours. Well, guess what? He was, the, he was uh, after the first JP2 indult came out, he was the very first to apostatize and to join the One World Church. Because nuttiness leads to nuttiness. And if you don't have your Catholic balance, you don't have your Catholic balance. And there are some rather prominent clergymen, I think, in the traditional movement today, Nicholas, who unfortunately could perhaps be described that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and unfortunately, I, I know one particular cleric who I think has gotten a bit too much into this stuff. I mean, maybe it's good in a way because he's not set of a contest, but he refuses to take on seminarians, even though people are asking him to, because he thinks the end is coming so soon that it would be a, a waste of time to do that. Yes, and, and he, he they we're talking about Bishop Williamson, obviously, and God love him. Yeah, but right. he, he he was always drawn, I mean, we knew each other as seminarians, it was no secret. He was always drawn to the to the private revelations, the prophecies, the end times, the apocalyptic vision and mentality. That's informed his entire life as as, as a Catholic and his entire life as a clergyman or now as a bishop. Uh, but that doesn't need to inform ours. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a bit like taking prudent steps for raising your family or providing for your family. We should have some prudent realization about things. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about about uh, uh, the end of the world fears and indeed this idea of the uh, the three days of darkness. Um, a, a lot of people are obsessed about these things, and that's just unhealthy. That's not Catholic. That's certainly not what 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 we are about. We worry about, my standard answer is, worry about the end of your world. It could come at any time. Don't worry about the end of the world, because nobody has any idea when that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Speaking well, about, about, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you mentioned the three days of darkness. But yeah. I have to admit, that, you know, maybe this will out me as some sort of, not really a traditional Catholic or something, but... I don't really even know what the three days of darkness is. I've just never been that into 
uh, end of the world stuff. So, mm-hmm. wh- what exactly is that? Well, it, in pri- it's, a, it's, a, it's a term that figures in private revelation. Many, uh, many acknowledged saints of the Catholic Church and, and, and mystics and blesseds of the Church, particularly Anna Maria Taiji, who was a, um, a Trinitarian third order uh, uh, married woman and who had many, many private revelations, uh, lived in the, uh, in the uh, late 18th century. She, uh, then St. Hildegard of Bingen, uh, the Blessed Gaspar de Buffalo, the founder of the, he was the Hammer of Freemasons. He was the founder of um, the Precious Blood Fathers. Uh, they say Padre Pio, but I guess there's a little, maybe a little controversy about Padre Pio. Uh, and then the famous Elizabeth Canori Mora. She's one of the ones who, who say that, uh, you know, at, at the end that uh, Peter and Paul will come back to this earth and they'll point out a pope for the restoration. So don't have to worry about it that much, which is, I think, a great idea personally. Um, and then there's the Breton mystic uh, um, Marie-Julie Jeannet, uh, who uh, she prophesied to this idea of the three days of darkness. It's just private revelation. It's, uh, it's, it's an interesting idea that at the end there will be, there will be indeed three days of darkness and then it gets some mystics elaborate on it quite a bit. And, uh, I remember as a young priest, people would talk not only about having blessed candles against the three days of darkness, but there was this mythology about having blessed grapes. And if you touch grapes to blessed grapes and then they would be okay and keep them in the fridge. And I don't know what would happen when the power goes off, but, uh, it's, you could see how this stuff really can go, go way too far, but it's a theme. It's, it's an idea. I think I, w- I would personally treat it uh, respectfully, and I'd say it's, it's certainly a possibility. But uh, and every Catholic home should have blessed candles. In any case, that's a, that's just a given. Use a pair of, of of good shape blessed candles of beeswax in case the Father comes with the blessed sacrament. And for the rest, we're in, we're in the Lord's hands. I don't. Uh, these things can easily be exaggerated. The spirit of fear that we've been talking about today, our Lord's come to cast out the spirit of fear. Uh, perfect love casts it out. So uh, that's a devotion to the Holy Ghost. But uh, to be aware of these things and to have some res- respect for it, it's a private revelation. I think that would be pretty much of a, of a Catholic uh, viewpoint on it. Father, would you have anything to add on the point of... Uh well, not uh, specifically on the question of three days of, of uh, darkness, but uh, uh, my mentality has pretty much always been the same, too, that, uh, uh, you know, when um, our Lord decides that it is uh, time for us, then it will be uh, time for the end of the world and for the judgment. And uh, in the meantime, we have to live, you know, conscious of, of our own end, and that's what we have to concentrate on in terms of our our uh, spiritual lives and in terms of the uh, the readiness that uh, uh, that we have. We're not going to figure. Uh, we're not going to figure it out. We're not going to uh, uh, predict it. There have been many attempts at uh, doing that in uh, the past, in the history of the Church, and certainly since the Second Vatican Council, none of it has, has uh, come to pass. So if anything, that uh, simply confirms that it's in, we don't know the day or the hour. It's impossible to predict, and uh, but it's ourselves that we should look to. Right, now, yeah, I, 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 I think... Uh, Sorry, go ahead, uh, 
Lord. I, I would say right here, there's, there's a danger of, um, there's a danger in all religion of, uh, of, of going pagan. And by pagan, I mean it's the idea that you use prayer, sacrifice, religion, worship in general as a way not only to placate the deity, but to control, to manage, to manipulate the deity, to get God or a God to give you what you want. That's the pagan idea. That's the idea of the occult, the devil worship. And that, that there's a temptation that we have from the devil towards that. And so people try to, they have all the, they, they, they move into the system of fear and then they try to manipulate God or manipulate their lives of, uh, as being Catholic somehow in, in, in a way that will remove as many of these dangers or problems as possible. Instead of a childlike filial trust in God, whilst at the same time, of course, always doing the duties of one state of life. That's the Catholic approach. That's healthy. That's sane. That's balanced. Uh, the, anything that's, that's really excessive obviously is, is, is not the Catholic spirit, and it doesn't give the name, doesn't do any good for the name of traditional Catholic, that's for sure. Because, you know, I mean, I think have to say fairly that we attract our fair share of nuts. Religion always does, but we get a lot, and, and, uh, and they, they tend to uh, act out in all of the points that we've been talking about today. So it's important for the rest of us who don't want to be nuts or squirrels or anything like that to try to keep that, that, that right balance, which is that of keeping a good spiritual life. Right. So uh, we're just getting towards the end of the show, but I think a good way to wrap it up is I wonder if each of you could um, maybe give your, your thoughts in general on how does one strike a balance between, uh, I guess, the ominous signs of our times. I mean, having had the Sea of Peter vacant for uh, coming on half a century now, and, uh, you know, uh, the, the Novus Ordo Mass and uh, the vast uh, apostasy in the world. So how do we strike a balance between all these signs that we see and our responsibility of, of living the faith day to day? I mean, should we just ignore these things or... Father Chicago, you go first. Well, it's a question of of, of uh, understanding the situation in the church. You educate yourself as to uh, what's going on. And as far as the long-term solution, you realize that that's in the hands of uh, of Almighty God. And I'm not going to be able to figure out uh, all of the, the details of how that's going to work out. But I know that in, in the, provi- uh, the uh, providence of Almighty God, it, it will, in fact, work out. I suppose uh, I see our situation as somewhat akin to those Catholics during the uh, Great Western System where he had three popes. You didn't quite know how the problem was going to be solved, uh, how uh, God was going to pull things through. But what uh, you did know is is, is that uh, you had your own religious obligations and that God is faithful, and you had confidence in his providence. And that is what I would, um, uh, that for me would be the key. Your Excellency? Well, um, I, uh, what, one thing that can be said is that historically, sometimes um, Catholics did flee 
uh, from persecution and flee to be able to have the Mass and the sacraments to live that way. Many Catholics left, left England. Some went to the New World, and they were disappointed there, I think in the Maryland uh, colony, which was supposed to have freedom for Catholics. The Puritans came in and, and, and destroyed it, but eventually they found their, their freedom to, to practice the truth, the true Catholic faith. And then many Catholics went to the continent. You hear stories about, well, certainly France, Spain, and Italy. But in, the, in those three countries, they, 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 they sought refuge. And some, some of the Catholic families that stayed in England persevered all the way through, and others of them did not. They had to, either the families died out or else the Catholic faith died out. It was just too much to bear. And then people eventually eventually just um, just gave up and and conformed to the uh, to the state church. So I think historically there's something to be said as we've been saying all the way through for either side. But um there's an interesting collect that's uh, that's sung at the Easter vigil on Holy Saturday and the and the idea is this that um uh, God gives us to understand that what's done What's done, what's being done today by God's grace is in no way less marvelous than what was done in the past, say in the time of Abraham or Moses or Noah. And that, that college where they sing it each year always strikes me. And I had a thought, um, what if we're not at the end of the world? There's a, uh, there's a, a priest who wrote an interesting book on the seven ages of the church. He was either German or French. He lived in the, he lived, I think, in the 17th century, possibly wrote then, um, in which he, he says, he predicts this age that we're going through now in the church, but then he says there'll be a full Catholic restoration. Uh, Nicholas, you mentioned the Mohammedans earlier. What if these new barbarians who are invading and taking over the West, because those who used to be Christians aren't having children anymore, and they're not getting married anymore, at least not the women. Men are not getting married to women anymore, so it's all sort of falling apart. What if, what if there's meant to be a, a true fall of the Roman Empire, fall of the Western or the American Empire, and, and, and then out of all of this darkness and mess, what if there'll, there'll be religious that will come? What if there'll be missionaries that will come, and all of these people will be converted, and then only after that, would come the end. These things are, are it, I throw out the idea, but it's all hidden. It's all just hidden in, in, in God's good plan. Our Lord may not be finished with us yet. And there's no way for us to know. Uh, so, it, it, but if, if we do our duty today in a real Catholic way, and are, and are conscious of the, the, the value of good example, and to give one, and then also to desire to receive the exa- good example from others, uh, we'll be ready for whatever God's adorable will is for us. Hmm. All right. Well, well, thank you for that, uh, Lord and, and Father. And that brings us uh, right up to, to the end of our show. So um, I'd like to thank both of you once again for joining us on Clerical Conversations on the Crisis. And uh, before I uh, bid both of you goodbye, I wonder, Father Chicada if you could uh, update us if there's anything new on uh, sggresources.org. For listeners, of course, that's uh, really the the go-to place for all the various articles and information that you you might uh, want in relation to St. Gertrude the Great Church, but also uh, the various issues going on in the church in general. And uh, I wonder if you could tell some of the recent updates. uh, portal site that will get you to all the uh, 
the different sorts of information. You can also use it to donate to our apostolate here at St. Gertrude the Great. There's a function for that. And uh, I call your attention to our internet uh, mass webcast apostolate. We've we've upped the capacity of um, our um, uh, internet service here, so more people are able to view the uh, masses that we webcast. We encourage people uh, to do that. Uh, they can not only uh, assist virtually over the web at the uh, traditional Mass, but they can also hear the sermons, and we have excellent daily sermons. Uh, during the school year, we have our Masses, uh, our webcast live at 11.20, and we have uh, four Masses on Sundays, uh, 7.30, 9 o'clock, which is the High Mass, 11.30, and the 5.45. So these are excellent opportunities uh, for you to have another way of uh, assisting at Mass if you don't have mass available in your own area. Yes, I do encourage uh, listeners. I've, I've solicited donations, of course, for Restoration Radio, but we ask our listeners also to consider supporting the apostolates of uh, the various guests we have uh, to assist them in continuing to do the the good work that they do. So uh, once again, uh, thank you, Lord and Father, for uh, uh, sharing your thoughts with us on a, another uh, interesting installment of uh, Clerical Conversations on the Crisis. Pleasure oh, you're here. very welcome. It's a pleasure. Okay, and we, uh, lo- looking forward to talking to you again in a, in a month's time. Very good. Good. Thanks. And we at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be of value to you and your Catholic faith, that you please consider making whatever donation is uh, possible and to those of you who have donated, a heartfelt thank you for your kindness and generosity. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, feel free to leave us a message on our Twitter handle, which is at True Restoration, or v- via email at uh, mail at truerestoration.org. And we want to remind you that Clerical Conversations on the Crisis is a production of the Restoration Radio Network, and uh, all rights are reserved and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden, but permission can usually uh, very easily be obtained by writing to us at mail at truerestoration.org. So uh, thank our listeners for listening, and uh, until next time, may God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.